welcome to Rescue Replay. My name is Kala and I'm your host. Here we are on episode 11 and actually I I have to admit something. This is actually my second take of episode 11. I had 45 minutes recorded and when I went to go and listen to it and edit it, it was all fuzzy and like my voice was drowned out. Like I'm not sure if it was the internet connection or if it was my microphone. And I tried adjusting and all of this and all of that, and I just wasn't happy, wasn't happy with it. So this is actually my second take on episode 11 when I had 45 minutes of content for you guys. So we're going to try and go back into that flow. We're going to learn from our failures, which is part of what I was talking about in that episode anyways, and we're just going to keep on moving forward. I just checked the sound quality and everything sounds good. I'm happy. So let's continue, shall we? Episode 11. Welcome. Awesome. I'm so happy to be here. Last episode, we were talking about blind faith. And, you know, sometimes when we think about blind faith, we think about blind faith in, you know, a religion, which I think is also really important. It doesn't necessarily have to be a religion. It can be whatever resonates and feels good with you. Um, But really what I'm talking about is blind faith in yourself. It was like this switch flipped and it became so simple and so easy to think about and to internalize that it was like, wow, we don't, how do we not talk about this? I have a really good example with one of my students. So when we talk about blind faith and, you know, having blind faith in yourself, you really have two options in this world. You either are looking for outside sources of validation into how good enough you are, or you go internally and you decide how good enough you are or how enough you are. I don't really like saying good enough because I think everybody is enough. So those are your options. You look for outside validation or you seek internal validation. And I had this student, she came to mind. She was a Bronze Cross student of mine and she was really struggling with her time swim. The first time swim, she walked into it and she said, "Mm, I don't know if I can do it. Like, I guess we'll see. Well, right there with that mental aptitude, you're telling yourself that "Mm, you're not sure. So you're probably going to carry out that action in your body. And actually, there's a scientific reason as to why that's happening, which I'll get into in a second. So she didn't make her first swim. She was over by 15 seconds. Not a lot. Well, unless you're a competitive swimmer, like 15 seconds is like a mile. But for people at the ability that they're at, you can play around with 15 seconds just because of their where they're at in their swim career and she was like okay i didn't get it okay that's okay i'll try it next time next time she swims worse but get this before she goes in the water she's like oh i don't think i can do it like i'm definitely not going to make it this time like i don't think so well yeah when you tell yourself that yeah absolutely that's exactly what you're going to carry out and she did exactly that she actually swam worse her second time And then on her third time, I was like, okay, are you ready for this? And she's like, yeah. And then I looked at her and I said, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to take a couple of deep breaths and take a moment. And I want you to decide in your mind that you are going to make this swim. 
However you get to that decision, you work it out in your own mind, breathe it out, and I'm not going to count you in and tell you when to go. You're just going to push off the wall and I'm going to start the timer. And she's like, okay, so you're, you're going to time when I push off? Yeah, you, you decide when you're ready. But first, before you go and push off the wall, decide how you want this swim to go. And lo and behold, she got her swim that time. And she made it by like, she cut like 35 seconds off her time. And I was like, see, like you just have to slow down, center yourself. And when you put your mind to it, you can accomplish your goals. You know, and sports coaches are really great for this because they can see how the mental aptitude in their athletes changes their output and their results. So it, you know, I love sports movies for those because they're so inspiring. They're so uplifting. They're like, you can do anything because the principles in sports really carry out into our entire lives and you can apply them forward in many situations. Sport coaches are really great to have in your life because they, they can give you some foundation blocks and building blocks. Not everybody is athletic, though. We have to appease that, right? And so this is where talking about positive self-talk and self-love and, and mental well-being becomes really important because not everybody has access to sports either. And because everybody doesn't have access to and equal opportunities across the board, that means we have to break this down so simply so that it's accessible to everybody. And it is. You, it's your two choices. We're, we'll go back to that. You look for outside validation or you seek internal validation. Everybody has access to that. So do not tell me that you cannot do those things. You can and you must. Whichever one that you decide is going to dictate how your life unfolds for you. If you're seeking outside validation, you're going to have a life of, of struggle for sure because outside validation is variant, right? Internal validation comes from a place of, of internal faith and trust. And trust me, I am no expert. Like just because I choose to go with internal validation as best as I can, I am not an expert at it. Do I still need compliments from other people? Yes. Do I still like fish for compliments? Yes. Do I do it as often as I used to? Absolutely not. Is it getting, am I getting better and more self-confident the more I practice and cultivate these skills and these habits? Yes, absolutely. But I still have hard days. I still cry. I still have self-doubts. I still feel jealous and envious. The difference is, is what I choose to do with that. There's a book out there that really explains this really well. It's called Biology of Belief. And what it is, so it's written by a PhD, and I can't even tell you his name, <laughs> which I really need to get better on quoting these people because they deserve the credit. I don't deserve the credit. I, I just read the book. But this book is in my storage unit in Calgary. I still haven't brought all my stuff over. So I will get that name. Uh, for you, but I do know the title of the book. It's Biology of Belief. And what he does is he breaks down human physiology, okay? And he 
states how the body is made up of 300 billion different cells. 300 billion different cells and these cells happen to all be single-celled organisms. Single meaning one, okay? And we also know that cells vibrate at different levels and we have lots of literature, lots of science that show us that sound waves, uh, light frequencies, um, epigenetics, energy frequencies, Gregorian chants, uh, 438 hertz. We have a lot of literature on how all of these things affect our vibrations. And if we're made up of 300 billion single cell organisms that also vibrate based on what their environments are telling them, well, now this is a really powerful information. It's actually kind of key. So let's focus on the single cell aspect of it. Single, meaning one, okay? I'm gonna keep repeating that because it is, it's very important in the whole scheme of things. If something can only do one thing at a time and it's, in, it's making up your body, then it means it can only carry out one command at a time, one thing, one command. And what organ in your body is commanding your body to do things? It's your brain. And who is in control of your conscious mind? It's you. So now when you put all of those puzzle pieces together, you realize that anything you tell yourself you are telling 300 billion single cells that make up your body and they are all vibrating at whatever frequency your words will allow them to. So if you say, I can't, that means you have 300 billion cells also stating, I can't. So of course, the body has no opportunity to surpass your your belief system because 300 billion pieces of you is working against that idea. 300 billion pieces of you is working to fulfill what you've told them to do, which is I can't, you know, and then you start thinking about manifestation and, and the universe and abundance and you can really crack this egg wide open it you can go really far down the rabbit hole with this one but stay with me we'll we'll keep it a little bit pg for right now so on the other end of the spectrum if you've told them i can't and your your body has no option it can't it won't not always because if you don't fully believe that you can't and you have the belief that you can and you're just saying you can't for whatever reason sometimes you can surprise yourself this way there's always the exception to the rule but on the other side of the spectrum if you tell yourself that you can if you've decided i can i will this is what i'm going to do you have now told 300 billion single cells that make up your body that one command so that means you have 300 billion pieces of you working towards that command and this is where we really start to exceed our capacities and this is where we still we really learn how to 
what our capacities actually even are and how to cultivate them and how to exceed them. And like I said earlier, sport athlete coaches already know this. They know the power of the mind. They might not know that, you know, the 300 billion single cell organisms fact, but they know the power of their mind because they're watching it in their athletes. They're seeing what emotional distress does to their performance or what unacknowledged emotions does to their performance or just a shitty mental attitude does to their performance. Now, if we take this principle and we apply it to life in general, and we go into our self-talk, whatever our self-talk is, is going to become our reality, which we've heard many, many times. But now that we know that there's 300 billion pieces of us that are falling in line with whatever it is we tell ourselves, it's kind of a little bit of a wake-up call, don't you think? 300 billion of pieces of you are acting out what you're telling yourself. To me, that's a powerful bit of knowledge because it's like if I have a choice to tell 300 billion of anything, anything, why wouldn't I make that a positive outcome? Why would I not choose that positive outcome? Why would I not give that to myself? And that I think is self-love. You know, getting your nails done, your hair done. Yeah, it's really nice, but that's just vanity. That is not self-love. And I can say that I do get my nails done religiously every three weeks. You know, I don't wear a lot of makeup. I don't, I do nothing to my hair. My hair is completely virgin. Um, but I do like to have my nails done. And that's just like a, a pure vanity thing that has nothing to do with self-love. The tricky part with positive self-talk is you can't just say something and expect that it's going to work out just because you said something. Like I would never be like, oh, I'm going to run a marathon in four hours. And just because I told myself, like, expect that I should be able to get it in four hours. You have to have some sense of, you know, capacity, reality, and honestly, genuine authenticity, okay? If you're telling yourself stuff and you deep down do not believe it, it doesn't matter how often you're, you tell yourself that. If you have a belief that's counter, that's the counter side of whatever it is that you're saying, the chances are your body will carry out your belief rather than what you're saying. And so this becomes really tricky because now we have to detangle all of our self-worth beliefs that we have that might be acting against us. You have to decide from the depth of your core what your worth is to you. And trust me, if we all knew the power of our presence, we would understand that our self-worth is like sky high, universal high. Like it's, it's insane how important you are just by waking up. And it's something that we really don't internalize very often, hardly at all sometimes. The thing about looking inside yourself and deciding what your worth is or knowing your value, knowing your worth, is there's always going to be people that demonize you. 
always, it does not matter how pure your intentions are, how good at your trade you are, how nice and kind you are, how giving, how forgiving, how compassionate you are, you are always going to be demonized by someone. And there is a saying out there that you know you've made it when you have your first critic. You know you're doing something meaningful when you have your first critic. Because it's easy to support people. It's easy to say like, yeah, you're doing great and, and bluff them and support them because you, you don't want to be mean and, and tell them the truth some of the time. It's not easy to criticize someone publicly and be the opposition to them. So once you have your first critic, they say that um, you've really made a mark in whatever it is that you're doing. So you have to decide, no, I am valuable, I am enough, and this is my worth. And then you have to act accordingly. And this is where people really start to waver on things because they're like, no, I'm, I'm worth this. But then they go and do something, they go and get white girl wasted, you know, and it's like, well, if you really think you're that worth, that your worth is so much higher, like why would you waste your time getting white girl wasted? So your actions also have to fall in line with what your beliefs are. And that is not an easy task. You don't just get to say like, oh, this is what I, I've decided for today and this is how I'm going to act for today. It's not just a momentary thing. It becomes a lifestyle. And you look at people like um, Jocko Willink and David Goggins and you know all of those mindset leadership gurus, they're like, no, consistency is every single day. It's not oh, I feel like it today, but I don't feel like it this day. And I feel like it today, so I'm going to do it. It's every single day. You have to carry out those actions that match your belief about who you are and how you want to be seen as, no matter what the circumstances are. You know, and also in the last episode, we talked about, you know, fitness and body positivity and stuff. And we see this every year for New Year's resolution. People are like, no, I am going to go to the gym. I'm going to get fit. I, wanna, I want my old body back. I want a new body, this, that, and whatever, which are all very admirable desires and wants, and they're all so valid. And I do believe that when you want that for yourself, it does come from a place of truth. What I also think is people don't understand the steps that they need to take in order to cultivate those habits. Because it's not just, oh, I need to wake up at 5.30, I need to go to the gym for an hour, and then I've put my two cents in for that day. Because if you go 100 miles per hour right from the beginning, your engine's going to burn out eventually. And we see that with New Year's resolutions. For the first two weeks of each new year, every gym, I used to work at this one pool, and for the first two weeks of January, they would send a message to all the staff saying that, the staff had to park somewhere completely different in the community, not even in the parking lot, because they were expecting an influx of people in the gym, which they were correct and it would always happen. But then two weeks later, we would get another notice stating like our influx has slowly declined and staff are now welcome to park back into the, you know, the staff parking lot, which I thought was really comical, you know, but it, and it's true that trend happens every 
New Year's, every New Year's. And people don't understand that going 100 miles per hour, you're going to cause a burnout. But if you go one mile per hour every day, you avoid burnout, right? So there's this other book. I think I've mentioned it before. If I haven't, here, here we go. It's called Atomic Habits. And here's another author that I don't know. But Atomic Habits is really kind of busting the scene right now. This guy analyzes what it takes to make habits. And I listened to this book on audiobook, and it was probably one of my most addictive audiobooks. I listened to it in one day. Like it was a five-hour audiobook. So I just uh, put it on for a day, and I was like, whoa, this is mind-blowing. And in this book, there is a gentleman that wanted what everybody else wants. He, well, I shouldn't say everybody. I don't know everybody, but he wanted a new body. He wanted to go to the gym. He wanted to cultivate a healthy lifestyle. And he knew that if he went 100 miles per hour, he would burn out right away and he would never stick with the gym. He, and I believe his story was he was overweight and he was also feeling a little bit sheepish to go to the gym because it is really intimidating. Doing new things when you're an adult is really intimidating. It's, you know, especially if you're on your own and you don't have any support going with you, it is definitely intimidating to experience new things as an adult. So what this gentleman did was he decided he was going to start really small and be really gentle with himself. And he woke up at 5 a.m., he got dressed, went to the gym, did one exercise for five minutes, and then he left the gym. And he did this for 21 days or 30 days or however long until he progressed his habit there. So the idea is, was that first he needed to solidify the habit of getting up, getting dressed, and getting out. When you break it down into small, sizable chunks like that, it's like, wow, that must be so effective. Because if you get into the habit of getting up, getting dressed, and getting out, if you wake up one morning and you don't get up, get dressed, and get out, then it feels alien to you. And I can identify with this because the first thing I do every day is I get up, I feed Zeppelin, go to the washroom, and then Zeppelin and I go out for a walk. And there's been a couple of days where I don't have to work in the morning or on my days off. And I'm like, okay, like I don't have to get up and get out right away. Like I can wait a little bit. I can laze around. I could even have my coffee first, which I don't really drink coffee. I drink a coffee substitute. Caffeine is also the devil. Anyways, but I think to myself like, oh, I don't have to rush or anything. I can just chill. I can lay in bed for a bit. I can drink my coffee substitute before going for a walk. But I always find myself on those days where I'm telling myself like, oh yeah, you can just relax a little bit and you can slack off a little bit. That when the time comes, I don't want to slack off. I want to continue my routine. Like it becomes second nature because it also becomes how I start my day and how I roll into the day which I think is a really cool mentality and I think it's really neat. So if we break this down and put it into our positive self-talk and thinking about habitual making and cultivating good lifestyle practices, we can also understand that you don't just get to tell yourself nice things like, oh, you're beautiful. Oh, you can do whatever you want. Oh, you're, you're a queen. You're this and that. You have to believe it. 
on the inside and you have to want it on the inside. And you also have to be gentle with yourself as well because just because you're telling yourself that doesn't mean you're going to feel it that day. And if you're not feeling it, you still have to tell yourself how amazing you are and how valuable you are. And you still have to find some way to believe that in order to change that pattern. Because could you imagine if, you know, on the days you felt good, you told yourself that you were amazing. And on the days that you felt bad, you told yourself you weren't good enough. Well, you'd never get anywhere then. There's, there would be, you'd be taking one step forward and three steps back every time you did that. So even on the days that you don't feel like you can, you have to, or else you're going to backpedal all of the progress that you've already made. When we think about lifeguards and rescuing and blind faith and positive self-talk and all of this, it really translates over quite seamless because how do lifeguards know how they're going to respond in a rescue? Well, they don't. There are lots of lifeguards out there that have been a lifeguard for a year, two years, three years that have never done a major emergency. They've never done CPR, a water spinal. They've never had, a, you know, all of these different variant medical conditions. They've had like nose bleeding, bleeds or cat scratches or, you know, maybe minor drowning on swimmers. But it's common to have lifeguards of a few years of experience with no major rescues under their belt. And then it's like, how do they know how they're going to perform in a major rescue? And this is why we have such rigorous training schedules for lifeguards. Like it takes over 100 hours to be a lifeguard. It's no, it's no Mickey Mouse. Like you can't just decide it on a whim and go for a weekend. Because also in your 100 hours, the amount of swimming and physical exertion that you need to expel in order to make your physical standards on time is also, you know, over and above your 100 hours. Then once you become a lifeguard, you have all your in-service training, extracurricular training, guard practices. You have to do your CPR every year. You have to do your NL every two years. You have to do your first aid every three years. So we have an ongoing rigorous training process in order to continue being a lifeguard. When I'm training my lifeguards, I always tell them, practice how you rescue. Practice how you want to rescue. Because in the heat of the moment, you're going to revert to however you practice. So if you're practicing not putting the pocket mask on the mouth and sealing and breathing, you're not going to do that in a rescue. If you practice just verbalizing, oh, this is a stroke victim, I would just lay them on their side that's not uh, pins and needles instead of actually laying them on their side, chances are you're just going to do what you practiced, right? There's lots of literature that support that. So for lifeguards, they have to walk in blind faith. They have to have some sort of knowing or some sort of belief within themselves that they can handle things when it push comes to shove while they're on the pool deck. And actually, one of the games I used to play with myself on the pool deck, because you have to remember, as an active lifeguard, you're not allowed to talk to anybody when you're out on the pool deck, because that's distraction. And when lifeguards are distracted, that's when things can happen and lifeguards don't see it, right? So while you're standing out on the pool deck, you're not allowed to talk to people. You have to stay in this solitary mode and you have to stay vigilant and alert enough to recognize and identify 
when something's going wrong and you have to do it within 30 seconds. Like it's a tall order. It, people really misunderstand what it takes to actually be a good lifeguard. There's lots of lifeguards out there and there are a lot of shitty lifeguards out there, which really irks my chain, but that's beside the point. So one of the games I used to play with myself while I was on the pool deck was I would pick somebody out in my pool, like whoever was swimming in, in the pool, I would pick somebody out and I would be like, okay, that person starts having a stroke right now in the deep end. What do you do? And I would think through and talk myself through all of the different steps. I would look at who my backup was. I would look at where my radio is and I would walk myself through all of the steps and the little details as to how to carry out that rescue, that person having a stroke in the deep end in the most efficient and successful manner. And it really helped my confidence as a rescuer because also too, if you can critically think through a problem in your mind, you are going to be way more prepared to deal with it on if it ever comes to be, then if you're just on deck daydreaming about what you're going to do after your shift or how bored you are or how you hate that song, the more you can critically think through a rescue scenario, the more likely it is going to be that you can perform in that scenario to your highest standard. Lifeguards are really underestimated in our society and I think it's really unfortunate because they do go through quite a rigorous training schedule and they have to be prepared for almost, well, not almost, they have to be prepared for anything at any one time that can happen in a pool, which a lot can happen in a pool. If you've, if you've ever been to a swimming pool, it's like hazard galore. You know, the other side of self-talk or self positive self-talk that we have to consider as well is when you decide what your worth is, your value, you decide that you're enough, you decide that you're going to start healing yourself from internally, talking, being gentle with yourself, being nice to yourself, this, that, and what have you. You also have to realize that anytime you have a critic or anybody that comes into your world that disagrees with you, your belief has to be so firm that it overrides what their belief is. You know, and when you start interjecting other things into the situation, like maybe you think that they're really cute, maybe you're lonesome and you want a relationship, this is where we open ourselves up to toxicity and this is where we get ourselves caught in situations that are unhealthy. You know, toxic relationships is definitely a leading problem in our mental health, for sure. I can think of one example, actually, well, I have a lot of examples. But with my ex-partner, my abuser, one thing that really stands out when I look back that I now know, okay, well, if this ever happened, like this is somebody that I cannot pay any attention to. And thinking back on the situation, and realizing that this happened and I let it happen, it's, well, it is what it is, but it's like, wow, how did I not see that one? You know, I think about a lot of moments in my past relationship where it's like, whoa, how is that not my wake up call? 
So I've been a lifeguard since I was 16, right? We all know this is the only job I've ever had. And this one situation I had, because lifeguards aren't superheroes either. Like just because you're a lifeguard, like, yeah, you are prepared for a lot of things, but that doesn't mean that you're always going to carry out the action during the rescue. And in fact, there's probably going to be a rescue where you don't carry out the action or you panic or you freeze. Luckily for lifeguards, we always have backup to some capacity to help us through these moments. So there's this one situation that I can think of that was really hard for me to deal with. It was a very terrible situation in a lot of different degrees. I was doing a change room check because my supervisor had asked me to, and she'd asked me to check on this one lady, and it was late at night, so there wasn't very many people in the pool. So I go in and I check on her and she's conscious, but she's not verbally responding to my questions. And so then I, I wrap a towel around her because she's shivering. And when I do that, she collapses into me and she starts seizing everywhere. And so if we look at our first aid, we know that the treatment for seizures is to protect the head by putting something soft underneath of it and letting them seize. Like you do not want to restrict any movement because they're seizing at 100% muscle potential. So if you restrict anything with 100% muscle potential, you're allowing them to potentially hurt themselves, right? So you know that you don't want to restrict movement if possible. So she collapses on top of me and she's convulsing everywhere on my lap. And to this day, I don't know how I caught her with my hands and went on the radio and said to my backup, like, I need you in here now, call 911 immediately. Uh, because I had caught her head on the way down. And the only reason why I was holding her head, and I was holding it very, I had a death grip on her head. And the reason why I was doing that was because it almost looked like she was doing this on purpose, but I know her conscious mind was not even there. But she was like trying to throw her face into the ground and smash her face into the concrete repeatedly. And I was like, oh my God, like you can't do that. Like, no. So I was restraining her head from smashing into the concrete ground. And I was so flabbergasted while this was happening. It was my first seizure of this capacity. And I was like, whoa. And I remember thinking while this was all going down, like, I wonder what the last thing she put in her body was. I wonder what it was. I wonder what she ate, what she took, what her medications are, because something caused this seizure was my gut instinct. And so she's seizing, she's seizing, my backup comes, she's got 911 on the line, she's got the trauma kit there. And then all of a sudden, this girl stops seizing and she goes limp like a wet spaghetti noodle. And in my mind, I was like, oh man she's dead. And I looked at my backup, back up with this like deer in the headlight stare. And I'm like, oh my God, she's dead. And I look back at her and I'm like, okay, what do I do for a dead person on my lap? What do I do for a dead person on my lap? And I'm frozen. You know, I'm not privy to not freezing. Everybody has, will freeze at some point. So I'm frozen. And then it's probably, it was probably only 30 seconds, but in rescues time is so elusive it's wild you know so 30 seconds goes by maybe maybe it was 20 maybe it was a minute i really don't know how exactly how long it was and then all of a sudden she takes this big breath 
And she looks at me with these wide brown eyes and has this smile from ear to ear and she's bright eyed and bushy tailed. And I like, I remember like looking at her and like frowning and being like, uh, what? And the first thing I asked her was, what was the last thing you put in your body? And she looked at me and she was like, fentanyl. And I was like, oh man. And at this point I got really angry because I was like, you mean to tell me that I was preparing for a dead person on my lap and what to do for somebody that died in my hands and you did this to yourself? Like this was a purposeful thing? So I left the, the scene and immediately I went onto my phone and I was like, mom, you'll never guess what happened. And then I texted my partner at the time who was my abuser. And you have to remember, I'm still in shell shock. Like I'm not okay mentally and emotionally, which is normal. That's to be expected. And I remember my partner comes back with, well, I'm sure you did a good job. And it's like, well, yeah, like that, uh, that's nice. It's nice to hear like, oh yeah, I'm sure you did good. But there is no meat to that. There is no bulk to that. And I was not okay. And I did not know that I did a good job. Like I had a lot of processing that I needed to go through. And he was very surface level, like, oh, well, I'm sure it's okay. Like she's okay. So everything's fine. That's it. That's the end. You don't need to talk about it was basically how he treated it. And the situation gets even worse. Actually, I was doing my documentation and Anytime that we called for ambulance at this particular pool, the police would always come because it was such a scuzzy part of the city. Yeah, this pool was, you know, it was the East Hastings of Vancouver. It was in Forest Lawn of Calgary. So it was a really scuzzy area. Lots of crime, lots of drugs, lots of violence. So the police coming was always reassuring for us as lifeguards when we had situations like this going on. And I was doing my documentation and I went to go and ask the medics and the police officers for their badge numbers because we put that on our documentation. And when I went to, I went back into the change room and they were all helping her get dressed and the police officer was talking to the one EMS attendant and I was standing there waiting to interject politely. And out of nowhere, the police officer says, well, it's obvious she's just a fucking loser. And he was talking about the victim and or the patient. And she was in ear, within earshot and she was alert and she was conscious. And then furthermore, I was standing right beside him. I don't even think he noticed that I was there, but this guy had no idea what I had just gone through. Like I was, a, I was 26 at the time. So I'd only been a lifeguard for 10 years, only 10 years. <laughs> um, but yeah, he had no idea what I had just been through. And he's talking about this patient, which his oath for his uniform is to serve and to protect. And he's going completely against his oath in front of another rescuer who thought that this person had just died in her lap. You know, so my rage meter went from, you know, steaming at the ears to like my head's exploding. Like I am fuming, which anger is a natural reaction to this, to the rescue process. Any reaction is a natural reaction. It just depends on who you are and, and what your, your status is as a person as to how you're going to react, right? So I went back, I left because I was like, get, I need to get out of here. Like, this is too much for me. And I told my supervisor that. And she was like, you need to make sure you get that badge number because we'll report him. And I was like, okay, yeah. And then I was standing out in the front lobby because I was like, oh, I'm not going back in the change room. And they're leaving the, 
law or the change room and I was like, Hey guys, can I get your badge numbers? And the medics give me theirs. And the police officer's like, well, let me go and get my partner who's doing a perimeter check and we'll come back in. And it gets even worse from here as well. When they come back in and you have to remember, I'm a young white female, I'm 26 years old and I'm in the front lobby of a pool in a very scuzzy part of the city. It's 9 30, 10 o'clock at night and I'm alone. And two police officers walk in. One who had said already that the patient was a fucking loser. So I was already upset and distrusting of this one police officer. The next police officer must have just come out of the police academy because he comes through the door and as soon as he sees me behind the counter, he like hikes up his pants, puffs out his chest and does this really douchey waddle to the desk and then he leans on the desk and gives me this like what's up kind of a look and then he's and I asked again I was like can I have your badge number please and he looks me dead in the eye and he's like you want my phone number and I I dead face this guy I have never dead faced somebody so hard first of all this guy was like not good looking he was a total twerp and second of all, like, no, when you're in uniform, you do not do that, especially to other rescuers. You wait until a respectful time when you're out of uniform on your free time. If you really need to ask that person for their number, if you really can't live without that, that information and you, you just get that gut feeling that you have to try, you do not do it while you're in uniform and to make situations worse. The senior police officer did not say anything in my defense. So this is where police brutality is born, is when behavior like this goes unmentioned. And I did report these police officers and, you know, they did get reprimanded, which is amazing. Uh, but what I also remember was telling my partner, my abuser at the time, and like, you have to remember, like, I was, I was scared, I was angry, and... I was upset about what had just happened, right? And he had told me, he said, he was like, well, if I were you, I would have called the police officer out right then and there. And I remember thinking to him and thinking like, wow, like, fuck you. Who are you to say you haven't rescued anyone ever in your entire existence? And you're trying to tell me how you should talk to a police officer when you just thought somebody died on you and they're disrespecting their uniform and you're alone with two officers and it's nighttime and it's a sketchy part of the city and you're telling me that I should have called them out at that? Like, no, maybe you should have supported me and been like, hey, I'm really sorry that you went through that. Can I do anything? Are you okay? Right? And looking back on the situation, and this is where, you know, narcissists and manipulators and gaslighters, this is where they start gaining their power over you, which I didn't know that at the time. They start dismissing your actions and how you manage things and they dismiss it and they tell you like, oh, well, you should have, or it would have been better if you, or, oh, it's not a big deal. Like, you don't have to think about it like that, you know, and it's, that is not being supportive. That is not being there for your partner. That is telling your partner that whatever it is that they are experiencing is not important. 
you know, and he did it again too. I had a lifeguard commit suicide actually. And uh, he was, I wouldn't say that he was a good friend, but anytime that we worked together, we always had a good time together. And there was this one moment that I'll never forget from him. There, well, there's two moments that I'll never forget. One was we were sitting in the office and I, I had found this new song by Mika and it was step one. And I was like, oh, Mitch, you should play this. And he goes on YouTube and he plays it right away, just, you know, on a whim. And we were just jamming out to this song, step one. So, and that was really fun. Mitch was such a great guy. You know, Christy, if you're listening to this, this is my little tribute to Mitch and, and to you too. Just a little shout out. The other moment that really stands out with Mitch is we, in our pool, we had this elevated position. We were in this tower position. And at this point in my life, I was hitting the gym like crazy. I was really trying to bulk and gain weight and, and really change my body around at that point. And I was taking out this garbage and you had to walk like, I don't know. Oh, it seemed like forever. The hallway to the back door to the dumpsters was a massive walk. And I had like four bags of garbage and I had my arms at a 90 degree. So my biceps were really flexed, which was, I didn't do that on purpose, but I had to because the garbage was so big that if I had my arms straight, it would have just dragged on the ground. So that's how I had to carry it. And Mitch was in the tower and he looks down at me walking out and it's closing. So things are really winding down and he's watching me take the garbage out and he looks at me and he's like, damn, Calla, you're fierce because you can see my bulging muscles. So those were some of my fondest memories of Mitch, but he ended up committing suicide, which is such a terrible thing. Suicide is the most heartbreaking thing in this world, I think, because to be there, you have to be in a really dark space and um, it's not anywhere that anyone deserves to be and I wish everybody just knew the importance of their presence because it would keep them from that darkness, I believe. And it was Mitch's funeral. And I went to Mitch's funeral and a lot of people were there. And after his funeral, I went to my abuser's place. And I was pretty sad. And I was like, yeah, I had just come from this funeral. And I was sad and whatever and kind of mopey. And he looks at me and he's like, there are other people who are more affected than you than this and he basically told me that I had no right to grieve that person and like an idiot because I wanted him so bad in my mind I believed him and I told myself like oh yeah Kelly just get over it and I don't think I've ever forgiven myself for for that because I think that that translates into my respect for for Mitch and I think that that's why like I still think about him and I still you know, pay him tribute in my mind is because I haven't forgiven myself for allowing somebody else to dictate how I should feel when, you know, I've, a comrade of mine committed suicide. And that's lifeguarding, man. It's a family that you enter. It's a community that you enter. And every rescue squad will tell you the same thing. You might not be best friends with that person, but whatever your fellow rescuer goes through, it's almost like the whole rescue team goes through that too to some degree, like maybe not to the same degree as other people, but you all feel it because you're all family and you're interconnected. 
you know, and again, like that positive self-talk and that positive self-belief really makes a difference when you're dealing with things like that, especially if you're entering into a world where rescue or making sure other people are safe and secure is part of your job, right? You just got to, you got to be there for each other. And it's about uplifting and encouraging each other, not about diminishing or dismissing each other, you know? If somebody says that they're struggling with something, believe them. Believe them and do whatever you can in your power to help them with that struggle. And yes, there are the people who, you know, really feed off of that sympathy and use it in a toxic manner. Every everything can be toxic. Any positive has a negative. Any healthy lifestyle has a toxic lifestyle. There's always that duality. You just have to manage yourself and your energy and allocate your resources where you can to the best of your ability. I think we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for joining me on episode 11. Really excited and really happy to keep continuing with this podcast with you. Let me know your thoughts. Give me some feedback. I always like hearing from you. And until next time. This is Rescue Replay, out.